You know, uh, it's funny, I was saying this morning as I was setting up our studio here at Praxis World Headquarters, which obviously is my kitchen, um, uh, Heather said to me, so is it like more sex talk today? And I said, oh yeah, eight weeks. And she, I think eight or six weeks or whatever, and she said, oh my gosh. And all I could do is laugh because I just thought it was great. We are in a series right now in this Old Testament poetic wisdom book. It's called The Song of Songs in the Old Testament. Uh, it's erotic love poetry, and we're just kind of digging into what it's, what it has to say for us a couple of millennia later, even more than a couple of millennia later, thousands and thousands of years later, what could it mean for us in our moment? So if you have a Bible and you want to open up with us, open up to Song of Songs chapter one. That's where we're going to be for a few minutes this morning together. Just want to say a couple things. If you've missed past teachings, all of this is online. And this is a kind of a co-teach with another guy named Mike who taught us last week. And I just thought it was fantastic. And he will kind of be bouncing back and forth throughout this series using some video along the way. But I thought last week in particular is really helpful just in this idea of how the culture kind of engages this idea of sex and how the church does and how we're trying to almost walk in a third way that we're not angels, nor are we animals, but we are these image bearers. And how do we live this out? The other thing is, as I see in the camera here, some of us are just like uh, wearing toques and hats all day long. And I just want to shout out to all the people that just need a, a haircut badly. Anybody with me? This is like my life. My life is a toque right now. I've just decided that until this thing is done, I'm going to grow the, the biggest, sickest beard ever. So... God help us all. It's all good. This is what Song of Song 1 says. Remember, we talked last week about there really being, th there really is three characters in the different poems within the Song of Songs. Um, there's she, there's he, and then at times when you read it, and I really encourage you to read it, there's this subheading of friends that there's these friends, or sometimes they're called daughters of Zion or daughters of Jerusalem. And so these are the kind of the three major players. This doesn't maybe make this doesn't matter a ton, but one of the things that I've come to with the reading as far as scholarship around the Song of Songs is that it's a collection of poems. It's not just one straight poem, but a collection of poems. And verses two to five here in chapter one is really the first poem, what I believe and many scholars believe is the first poem in a set of poems. And this is what it says. She says this. You heard this last week. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is more delightful than wine. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfume. Your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the young woman love you. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. And then, and I know this is kind of odd for us in the Western world, a couple of thousand, more than a couple of thousand years later, the friends respond in the poem like this. They say, we rejoice and delight in you. We will praise your love more than wine. Okay. I think there's a couple things right off the top that we need to take note of right off, uh, right off the bat. First, this will help us in the frame of which uh, this poem kind of lands in the Old Testament. There are a couple helpful things I think we need to think through. One is that in the Old Testament, when a man and woman are alone in a bedroom, or we hear it here, they're alone in the chambers. I think the, the Hebrew word here is heder. When a man and woman are alone in the chambers or the bedroom, it is a place of intimacy and is almost always a sexual relationship. 
So this is not a guy and girl wanting to go for coffee at Commonwealth, right? This is not like some platonic thing. This is a, a, a picture of sex for us. It's a, it's a sexual picture. As we learned, even that word love in these first few verses is a sexual kind of love. And so we keep that before us, that the Bible doesn't shy away from this, that it actually engages this idea of sex. Um, the second thing, though, is, and I, we need to catch this, upon the couple's entry that we see here in the poem into the bedchamber, a chorus of women, the friends, you hear them here, chime in with their happy approval of this union. Now, can we, can we just be honest? This seems a little weird. <laughs> Anybody? Like kind of people cheering on this sexual relationship, these women cheering it on. But actually, poetically, it makes sense in the context of the Old Testament. In essence, these friends are actually providing their blessing for the relationship. You know, I talked a couple weeks ago about the upa in a, a traditional Jewish wedding. The bride and groom would do, say their vows under the upa, and then they would go and they would consummate their marriage. And the, the wedding party would often lead them to the chamber to consummate their marriage under the upa. It's hard for us because we're very individualistic in the Western world. We think about ourselves, even think of dating. A lot of times dating, what happens when people start to date? And I, we can even be, I think, you know, even Heather and I were probably at fault for this. You can tend to pull away from family and friends to try and build a bit of a relationship. But in the ancient Near East, in the first century, there's this communal aspect. And so you have this chorus of women in the poem here, and they are blessing this relationship. They're confirming the couple's love and they're also echoing the woman's sentiment that this love that they're experiencing as they head to the chambers is better than wine. Now, what's the point? The point in this is that the other two places in Scripture, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible, where a benediction accompanies the relationship between a man and a woman, each of these instances are marriage relationships or marriage contexts. And I would just say this, I think it can be argued in light of that as you trace what's happening here with the benediction from this chorus of friends is that this is talking about a marriage relationship. It could be argued on the basis of the opening of the poem and of this song in the Song of Songs that it's implying a marriage relationship. And this is what most scholars think, just the way it sits in the Old Testament. This is talking about a male and a female entering into marriage. So with all that said, those two points made, just the idea that this is about intimacy or sexual love, and this is about marriage, let's take a couple minutes and talk about sex and marriage. Thanks for joining us. Heather, I'm sorry, I'm sure these six or eight weeks will go fairly quick, but it's all good. If you have a Bible and you've already opened up to Song of Songs, let's just go back uh, for a few minutes and then we'll go forward. I think one of the things that in my engagement of this book, is it continually pushes us back to the garden. There's tons of garden imagery in and throughout these, or throughout these poems. So it pushes us back to the Garden of Eden, but then it also pushes us forward to what Paul often instructs the churches in the New Testament. And so, we're, I mean, we did this last week. If you were part of the teaching last week, we were bouncing all over the place. And that's what we're going to do today again. Just go back and then we're going to lean forward a little bit. You know, one of the things you see in Genesis 1, and it was so, it was just so well put last week, is that the rhythm of Genesis 1 is that everything is good. If you're a Hebrew reader, you feel it in your bones as you read. God's creation, the sun, the moon, and the stars, the land, the animals, everything within it, there's this rhythm that it's good, and it's good, and it's good. 
And then at the end of this creation process and this creation period, the scriptures show us that God looks and sees that it is very good. So you should feel it in your bones when you read Genesis 1. I know we read in English, but the Hebrew reader especially, oh, they are feeling it. Tov is the Hebrew word. It is good. It is good. But I think you also, I think the way this is set up is that when you flip the page to Genesis 2 and we begin to read about the creation of humans and the first kind of human relationship here between Adam and Eve and what's going on in the story, one of the things you you should feel and I should feel is that that rhythm is broken. Genesis 1, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's very good. And then look down in your Bibles. Genesis 2 verse 18 says this. Then the Lord God said what? It is not good that man should be alone. So here's what I'm going to do. I will make him a helper that's fit for him. You feel it? It's good. It's really good. But there's one thing that's not good, that man should be alone. Now we hear this word helper, and I know ladies, especially in our moment, you're like, oh my goodness, I am nobody's, you know, you hear about helper and this kind of, we can kind of think of it as almost like derogatory, it can even sound kind of derogatory in our culture, almost like a personal assistant. But actually the word here is really deep in its layers. It's actually better translated partner or one who comes alongside to help achieve a goal. This is what it means when the scriptures here say helper. Even deeper, where are my ladies at? Check this out. Even deeper, this word helper, which is azir or ezer in Hebrew, it's also found in other places in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible. It's used over and over, and almost always it's exclusively used in the Old Testament to describe God himself. Come on, so I need, we need some like virtual hand claps. Come on, somebody. You know, oftentimes we think, again, of this maybe more in derogatory terms, but actually Ezer or helper that's given to the woman in the creation account is actually a description of God throughout the Hebrew Bible. Amazing. This is a beautiful word. Other times it's used to describe military help, such as reinforcements. To help someone in this context is to make up what is lacking and is to bring them strength. Come on, somebody. This is actually the context. And so this helper, this picture, is more about partnership than anything. The second part of this, though, is that that God says, I'm going to make a helper that's suitable or fit for him. This word fit actually in its layers means on the same level. And this is something we affirm and believe when we talk about image bearers, whether male or female, are created in the image of God on the same level. You know, Tim Keller, a great theologian and pastor, he renders it like this. He says that male and female, what this idea of fit means is they are like opposite. That the female is like opposite him, the male. This is what Keller says. He says, they are like two pieces of a puzzle. Where are my puzzle people at? They're like two pieces of a puzzle that fit together because they are not exactly alike, nor are they randomly different but they are differentiated such that together they can create a complete whole. And then he goes on and says, each sex is gifted for different steps in the same great dance. I love that. Like opposite. uh, This helper is created, this partner is created, and they fit together. And then you keep, keep reading. Verse 19, Genesis 2. Keep reading. Now out of the ground, the author says, the Lord God had formed every beast of the fields and every bird of the heavens 
and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and all the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not, a, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into woman and brought her to the man. And in this story, listen to what happens when the man encounters the woman for the first time. Then the man said, and this is actually poetry. This is song when you actually read it in the scriptures. This is what Adam says. He says, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. I should kind of try to be singing it because you wouldn't want that. But I should really be singing this because this is what's flowing out of Adam. This is bone of my bone, flesh of flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now notice something here. The first word out of a human's mouth in the scripture is what? The first words out of a human's mouth in the scriptures is a love song. That's not by mistake. The first words out of a human's mouth in the scriptures, the Hebrew creation account that we have, is a love song. And this love is overflowing at this helper, at this partner in what he sees. Therefore, it says, verse 24, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall be called, the, the Hebrew word here is akkad. I don't know if you can say that word with me, akkad. They shall be called one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. No fig bikinis, you know, this beautiful picture of peace, shalom, harmony, man and woman coming together. It's interesting that the call here is that the man would leave his wife and come together as one, uh, sorry, the man would leave his father and his mother and hold to his wife and become one flesh. Depending on how you read this, it's interesting, did Adam have parents? I know people come to this particular, these passages uh, differently, but you know, I think this is speaking of future generations where uh, 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 children will leave their father and mother and they will become one flesh. The word here is a cod, one flesh. There's layers to this word when we think of it in its context in Genesis 2. Really what it means is a cod or one flesh means being glued together or fused together at the deepest level. You know, one of the things we've been talking about is that sex is spiritual. It's more than just two bodies coming together physically. I mean, that's part of it. It's more than just grown-ups and recreation. There's something soulish at a soulish level. And this is what this word a cod actually means. That these two humans come together and they are They are glued together. They are drawn together. They are fused together at the deepest level. You know, scholars believe that the word sex in English is actually related to the Latin word sacer, which means to sever or to amputate or to disconnect from the whole. I think this actually says in this framework of just even the linguistics of it all, I think that this says that our sexuality has two dimensions. First, our sexuality is our awareness of how profoundly we've severed off, how profoundly severed off and disconnected we are because of the fall. 
There's this longing in humans to be in relationship, to be drawn together. We are created for relationship. And one of the things in a broken world, our sexuality makes us aware of how profoundly severed we are and disconnected from the world around us. And I would say also say that our sexuality is all of the ways in which we go about reconnecting. Sex is powerful. There's a deeper, more beautiful story than just recreation and adults at play. Sex is powerful and sex is spiritual. And you know, I think one of the things when we look throughout the scriptures and kind of get a biblical theology of sex and marriage, I think one of the things the scripture shows us is that the only relationship that can really hold the power of Akkad, the only relationship that can hold the power of sex and two bodies coming, two lives being fused together is the relationship of marriage. It's not about being old school. I was thinking this week, it's not about, God's ideas is not about being old school or Victorian or kind of out there. You know, a lot of people will say, you know, it's 2021, come on, haven't we evolved? But I think when we look at biblical theology, you look at what God says about sex, this idea of marriage is the, the container which holds the power of sex. Ultimately, people can come at it any way they want. You know, we can come from a posture that sex isn't powerful, but I think one of the things the scriptures leads us to is the beauty and the reality that sex is powerful. And the place for that, the protective place for that, is when male and female come together in marriage. You know, often uh, I'll hear people say that, you know, the Bible is patriarchal or it's misogynist or it's oppressive of women and I'm not going to sit here and argue that the Bible wasn't written at a different time and place in space. It was written at a different time and place in space. But I think what's often lost, especially in some of the Old Testament texts, is how future forward the Bible and the scriptures actually are. One of the things we kind of struggle with is we look at it through Western eyes. But when you look at it through ancient Near Eastern context, you begin to see that the Bible is actually, I think, well ahead of its time in its view of woman, in its view of sex, and what this means in relationship. Here's a couple examples. I'll just read you a couple. That when you first read them, kind of Old Testament laws, when you first read them, they kind of sound gnarly and out there. But when you actually get the real context of what's happening, something beautiful emerges. This is what Exodus 22 says. It can sound weird. This is what six, verse 16 says. Let me read it. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. You read that, you're like, what? Here's another one. Deuteronomy 22, 28 through 29. It says this. If a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed and seizes her and lies with her and they are found, then the man who lay with her shall give to the father of the young woman 50 shekels of silver. What? And she shall be his wife because he has violated her. He may not divorce her all his days. Now, again, you read this at like cursory reading. You're like, what is going on? This sounds oppressive. But think about it. Is this a high view or a low view of sex and relationships? Rob Bell, he puts it like this. He says this. Obviously, we're repulsed by the inhumane treatment of women in these passages. And at first glance, it seems there's nothing remotely redeeming about these laws. But the Bible was always ahead of its time. Women basically had no rights in the ancient Near East. A man could do anything he wanted with her. 
He could rape her and then be on his way. He was free from the consequences of his actions. And a woman who had been raped was considered violated and unclean and would often be considered unworthy to be anyone's wife. But this passage essentially says to the man, you want to have sex with her? Then you take her as your wife. You take care of her. You provide for her needs. You fulfill your duties as a husband to her. She is your equal and you will treat her as such. In that context, we begin to read and you begin to see that the scriptures actually have a really high view of woman, of sexuality, of sex and marriage to the point where it doesn't go with the ancient Mediterranean kind of way of living. And especially when we get to the Greco-Roman world in the first century, it actually goes counterintuitive. Through these laws, women were protected and it set a standard that you can't just go around and do whatever you want with your body. There are consequences. You with me? God actually has a very high view. And sometimes when we look at the restrictions of some of what the scriptures say about what we do with our bodies, it can be painted in a negative light. I look at it and go, this is a gift from God. This is beautiful. And this is the kind of story we want to tell. So we went back. We went back to the garden as Song of Songs does all throughout the pages. But let's move forward for a second. You know, Paul, and it was so well put last week, I think Mike did a good job just talking about the context of the Greco-Roman world, especially in Corinth. There was this idea that food for the stomach and stomach for food. This is what they would say. They would say, food for the stomach, stomach for food. Basically what they're saying is, um, I can sleep with anybody. I can go to the temple and sleep with prostitutes. When I feel like I want to have sex, I'm going to go after it and I'm going to get it. And so the church was kind of caught in this reality that this was the cultural norm. And actually, some of the church went completely the other way. So there were some that were saying, everything's permissible, Roman culture, sleep with whoever you want. And now there are others saying that maybe we shouldn't be permitted to marry. There's like these, this swing of the pendulum where some are adopting the culture and now some are becoming so conservative and have crazy extremes in their views that they're saying things like, it's good for a man not to have sex. Following me? You have the culture, do it with whoever you want in the church. Now some are saying, well, because of the culture, you're not, you should not have sex. So Paul gets at this in 1 Corinthians 7 and how he leads the church and how they're going to live this out. And there are things, I think, in the New Testament scriptures that we really eagerly try and understand in the sense of like the complexity of it, what's the language saying. Right here, it's actually really simple what Paul is saying. An English reading of this just really makes it pretty simple. This is what Paul says. If you want to flip there, it's 1 Corinthians 7, chapter 1. He says this, Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man to have Oh, sorry, it is not good for man to have a sexual relations with a woman. So this is somebody in the church. Paul is quoting them by saying, this is what you say. But Paul says this, but since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. But in the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. We'll get there in a second. That's just funny. 
Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a confession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am. And what was Paul? Paul was single. Paul was like, yo, in the complexities of all that happens with sexuality and Greco-Roman culture and all the ideas pervading the church, he's like, I wish you'd just be like me and be single. Come on, somebody. And then he says this, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift of singleness, but another has that. Really simple here. Paul says a few things. Respect the person that you're married to. Respect your spouse. He also says, though, something very subversive. Your body is not your own. So bodies in the church, in this covenant, have a responsibility towards each other in this beautiful idea of marriage. A cod, right? One flesh, two humans coming together that are fused together at the deepest level. This is a story that needs to be told. But then Paul also says this, don't deprive each other. And then he says, don't deprive each other unless you agree that it's, permiss- uh, that it's presumed that you make this decision together because of your devotion to God in prayer. Isn't that so funny? It's just funny that um, if you're going to take time away from having sex together in, in a marriage relationship, Paul is like, yo, then you're probably, what you're probably doing is praying. Who thinks like that? Nobody thinks like that. There's a frame here for which Paul is leading couples within this community to live it out. We don't go one extreme or the other. We don't take on the Greco-Roman view that, you know, food for the stomach, stomach for food. You know, if I'm turned on, I'm going to sleep with whoever I want. That's not how it works. But it's also not this, this phrase that kept coming up in the church that it's good for a man not to have sexual relationships. We walk in what I think Mike put best last week. We walk in a third way where we're drawn together in these relationships. In Ephesians 5, Paul calls marriage a mystery. And those of you guys that are married, you're like, (laughs) that pretty much has translated pretty well over the last couple thousand years. The, The Greek word here is mysterion, and it actually gives the idea of a secret, which is interesting because Paul says marriage is a secret, and he uses this word, but then he actually begins to explain to the community what the secret is. He actually says that marriage is a mega mysterion, a mega mystery, an extraordinarily great, wonderful, and profound truth that can only be understood with the help of the Spirit. This is his idea, that it is a mega mystery, but then he gives the secret sauce for the secret. Yes, marriage is a mystery, but here's the secret. And it goes in verse 20. This is right before uh, kind of the submission passages where Paul calls the community to submit to one another. He says this, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The communities called, husband and wife and the church community are called to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So Paul calls marriage a mystery. It's a secret, but then he gives a secret. The secret is mutual submission. Mutual submission together. The word here is upotasso. It's a compound word. Upo means to, uh, to it means under. Uh, tasso means to be placed in order. So really, what this word means is to be placed under, to place yourself in allegiance, to give yourself, to tend to the needs of another person, to be responsive to. This is this is the picture that Paul gives of marriage. In the garden, husband and wife, male and female, come together in a cod. They're fused together. 
Now Paul knows the complexity of the fall and all that's going on in the Greco-Roman world, that marriage is this place to be called together, to place ourselves under each other, to be drawn together in mutual submission. And I think Paul's vision in Corinth and Ephesus and in these early churches was that this is how the community would live it out. They would mutually submit to each other. There's so much said of the power dynamics in the Greco-Roman world and, you know, people have all sorts of comments about the Bible. I, I mean, I get it. It's a different world and place and time. But I think these texts show us just how ahead of its time in many places the scriptures are. Now, one of the questions we I've got, you know, over the last 10 years through our church and doing uh, student ministry and young adult ministry in the past is, is there the one, right? This is a question people often ask. Is the, there the one out there for me? Well, I'll just say this. This is a longstanding urban legend um, that there's a myth- mythical creature out there somewhere, probably next to a unicorn, who's out there to complete me. And people often ask, is the one out there? Is this true? Well, I'll just say this. This idea actually comes from Greek mythology, specifically from the ancient writing of a guy named Plato and something called the Symposium. Maybe you've read that in college or university. According to Plato, humans were, the thought was each had four arms, four legs, two sets of genitalia, male and female, and one head made up of two faces. And the thought was through this mythology that these four-legged, two-faced humans became a threat to the gods, but the pantheon didn't want to destroy them. And if they did, they would lose their worship. So Zeus, the king of the gods, split human, the thought was he split humans into two, cutting their strength in half and doubling the number of, of his worshipers, which just makes sense. And Plato writes that ever since then, ever since this whole thing with Zeus and Greek mythology, we've been searching for our missing half. And yet the Christian point of marriage isn't to find our missing half at all. It's to help each other to become all that God has intended us to be. The Christian answer to this is actually, when we talk about is the one out there or are two people compatible, the Christian answer to this question is actually that no two people are compatible. I love Stanley Hauerwas. He's a theologian. He's a great guy at Duke University. He says this. He's an ethics professor. He says this. Destructive to marriage is the self-fulfillment ethic that assumes marriage and the family are primarily institutions of personal fulfillment, necessary for us to become whole and happy. The assumption is that there is someone just right for us to marry and that if we look closely enough, we will find the right person. The moral assumption overlooks a crucial aspect of marriage. This is what he says. It fails to appreciate the fact that we always marry the wrong person. I know you're out there somewhere, Heather. We know whom we marry. We, we, sorry, he says this. We never know whom we marry. We just think we do. Or if we first marry the right person, just give it a while and he or she will change. For marriage, being the enormous thing that it is, means we are not the same person after we have entered it. The primary problem is learning how to love and to care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. You know, we talk about compatibility. Hauerwas here says nobody's really compatible. This is the mind-blowing idea of Christian marriage, is that we come into this relationship 
and upotasso. We, we submit ourselves to each other. It's mutual. We bring and draw our lives together. There's this subversive way at looking at the world and it's not just about pleasure and it's not just about being happy all the time, but it is about laying our lives down and understanding. Really, there's no two people that are compatible, but over time we learn in this relationship what it is to follow Jesus and what it is to be more Christ-like and what it is to lay our lives down for somebody else. So we go back to the Song of Songs to close. I find I've just wrestled all week with the reality that these friends are here, these women, this chorus of women are here, and they are giving their approval to the sexual relationship. It just seems so weird to me reading it. You know, again, they say, We rejoice and delight in you. We will praise your love more than wine. And as awkward as that is, honestly, to read that, um, I think it also says something. It says that a community of people celebrate this gift. While sex and intimacy has kind of been swept, again, I'm just, I don't want to reiterate everything from last week. While sex and intimacy is often swept under the rug in the church, here you get a picture that this is celebrated, that God's ideas are actually good. That what happened in the garden with male and female coming together in unison, in, in, in a cod, is good. That Paul's instruction to lay our lives down for those we're in relationship with in marriage and to give of ourselves, humbly give of ourselves, as Jesus being the example of him laying himself down for us, is good. And I look at this here as the chorus kind of cheers them on in a way. And I just wonder if the church should take a posture where we need to celebrate this gift. This is a gift from God. And instead of sweeping it under the rug, um, maybe one thing we need to do is look and see here that there's a celebration of this marriage coming together. This is the kind of culture I want to create here. We want to create at Praxis. You know, one of the things we have not done is we have not overemphasized marriage, partly because when you read the scriptures and you see, and even now culturally in the evangelical church, it's almost like marriage has become an idol. For those of you guys that are single, you know, we haven't talked about marriage a lot because we, we view singleness in our community as a very, very high calling. It's a beautiful calling. But I also find it interesting that there's this celebration of this man and woman coming together in sexual love. And there's a celebration within the community that this is God's idea and God's intention. And so my hope is, as we think about these things, that sex is an incredibly important part of marriage and intimacy, a cod being fused together, that two humans come and in every faction and every layer of their life is drawn together. And trust me, we've said this over the last couple of weeks, we are in a broken, fallen world. There's all sorts of brokenness. But I also hope that we could create a culture within our own church community in the future here that would celebrate lives coming together. The practice could even be a place that fosters wholeness and goodness and healing. And we all have made mistakes and we are all broken in these areas. But my prayer as well is that we could uh, lean in and listen to what Paul says, that we could be this mutually submitting community to each other. We could celebrate what God is doing. And so I want to take a second. I want to pray for us. Pray for our, our community. You're like, dude, we're three weeks in and we're only five verses in. Don't worry, we'll, we'll speed up here. But I think these grand themes 
um, need to be before us. God loves sex. And um, we want to cultivate in our community a posture that celebrates the lives coming together, joining together. So let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for practice. I thank you for our church. I wish we could be together in the same room. Um, even last week to hear laughs. <laughs> I think of um, just us being isolated and separated a bit. I thank you that we have the means to do this together this morning, to be together. I pray for some of us, and I've been on my own journey with this, that, that may be skeptical at times about your ideas, God. In our culture, sometimes it can seem so out there, but I pray that we would lean into your scripture and what you've left us with. For people that are broken, and all of us that are broken in these areas, would you make us whole and would you make our community a listening community, a community that slows down and walks with each other. I do pray that our community could foster healthy relationships in all areas. And I just pray that you would use us, some of us that have been around this community for a long time, just to be an ear, to be a blessing to our brothers and sisters around us. May we rejoice and delight in you, as they say. And God, may we praise your love that's better than wine. May we be this community, this group of people that's just open postured to what you're speaking and saying, where specifically you're leading us in this area. I pray grace and peace on every person in our community. In Jesus' name, Jesus' name. Brothers and sisters, we love you. Um, what we're going to do is we're going to take a couple minutes. I do want to encourage you, if you, if you want to join us for the marriage course, you can still sign up. We love you guys so much. Make sure to take some time as well and join us for coldest night of the year. What we're going to do is my friend Cam is going to send us into some groups, and we're just going to take some time to say hello and maybe just to share maybe what's on our heart, what we're thinking. We love you guys. We'll see you soon. Grace and peace.